planet of Hedria is an oddity to itself. Two hemispheres, one perfectly an ocean and the other perfectly all land. Its civilizations throughout the years have always been along the coastline to ensure their survival. They have learned how to boil the salt water from the ocean to make it potable for them. They have learned how to do so many things with it to make it sustainable. But society still collapse. Thousands of years before our story even began, such a society existed. It rose a collapse in the span of a thousand years, but it still left its imprints. The little shelters still exist on the planet, housing our heroes and giving them a little bit of breathing room and a space to relax. The plants that they planted along the coastline provided medicine that could be used for the heads of the monastery and for Rose, who, as we speak, is being loaded onto the ship headed towards Anora. Our heroes load up on the ship that they stole from Star Academy with Blue making a compartment along the bottom to house Wind's precious ship Fang perfectly. Wind takes the pilot seat as per normal, and Jin slowly sinks into the captain's chair. It's a long flight to Honora. It gives all of them time to think. What makes them special? What makes them connected to all of their journey mates so far? Why are they seemingly chosen? for this mission. Blue, as the ship takes off from this beach planet headed back towards the planet that you called home for so long, you can't help but reflect on what that thing is that you talked about on the beach. What exactly is it that makes this group so special? What is the connection? How far back does Blue go in their reflection? I feel like back to what Blue considers the beginning. Sitting in school, graphic tablet in hand, filling out answers to what they believe is just another standardized test. We see this scene of you in this giant group of other Anoran children, um, all of them sitting there with this pad in front of them, some of them looking more confused than others, but none of them look so confident as their answers than blue. For you, it feels like another standardized test. That's all you are led to believe what did it feel like as you were answering these? Blue likes thinking. They like solving problems. They like turning things over in their head. They like discovering new things, learning new things. Um, and what drew them to this test more than, you know, any other test was the way that they were learning things by working through the questions. It wasn't just a test of their knowledge, but they were discovering something new almost as they begin to fill out these answers and work through these problems. As you get to the end of the test, there is this 
like essay portion where it's writing about it and the question is something you haven't seen on any other test before it's rate your experience with this test justify your rating uh they sit and think a moment and then i think worry a bit that first that there's not a a scale specified for the rating out is it 10 out of 10 is it five stars is it out of 100 they Hmm. eventually settle on that they give it three separate ratings engaging five out of five difficult two out of five enjoyable four out of five they calculate overall score 3.8 out of five the scene kind of hazes for a second. Um, it's a little bit of a mirage, but we see the next thing as it comes back into focus is you standing kind of in the hallway outside of this testing area that all these Anoran children were being held in. And from all the other children, you get this connection and this feeling from them of struggle of challenge of all of these things that they are that you can tell they are reflecting on how they felt about the test blue makes a note a mental note about the difference between how they're feeling about the test and how their classmates seem to be feeling about the test and to them it almost highlights rather than being something they're proud of and something that you know, they can really celebrate fully, it becomes, you know, the test itself was, you know, almost exhilarating, was almost fun. Um, And they felt good coming out of that room. And then feeling their classmates' reaction, they realize that that must have been the wrong reaction. And the feeling that they've always had of difference from their peers just intensifies and their sense of aloneness just intensifies, and this sadness that even in what they feel like is an accomplishment, they still feel other and an outsider, and they feel like somehow they did something wrong. It's not even an hour later before everyone's graphics pads start to light up, Uh, a message being sent out through all of them, saying the tests have been graded already. Blue, everyone else's screens glows and there's only a single line of text saying, sorry, you were not accepted. Yours, however, is different. Yours is several lines of text. It's paragraphs. It's signed. It has everything you want. And the first thing you read is, Dear Bolin Finn, You are a very special person. We request that you join us at Paradigm. And the scene hazes out from there. And we, it focuses back in on your parents, all three of them sitting at the table with you as you present this letter to them. Blue sets their graphic tablet on the table and 
then just kind of step back. I do want to say real quick, just because this is funny, when they first got the results of the test, they start doing backflips. I can say this because Drew isn't here. And under <laughs> underwater, Blue does amazing backflips. I'm not going to make you roll or anything. Yes, it's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so when they enter their home, they place the tablet on the kitchen table and they move back as if to signal what do you think about this your parents each one by one uh, start to read through this letter and they at first seem excited they seem happy towards the beginning and then as they go further and further in each of them seem a little bit worried and worry leads to disappointment and disappointment leads to confusion and confusion leads back to worry. Your parents look at you conveying and trying to convey a sense of you are special and you are loved and you are wanted. This is not what you need to do. Blue starts sending them images of them at school, you know, alone at lunch and, you know, swimming around by themselves in the, you know, in the, the deep pit just, um, you know, nearby the school and, you know, exploring the underwater caves by themselves, always alone. And then they transmit feelings of, you know, of difference, of separation, of, you know, not belonging, alienation. And then they send an image of them sitting at the test and poring over the questions and answering them and infusing that with a feeling of, you know, not just different, but special and of pride in their accomplishments and of, you know, being set apart and now in a positive way rather than negative and isolating way like it was in the previous image. Your parents uh, feel these images and think on them. It's a few days of thinking for them. They express to you several times that there has to be another way to do this. There has to be another way, maybe. I, I think it was one of your parents, I'm not sure which, that even said... Maybe if you just tried harder to make friends. Blue shakes their head, backs away from their parents, shakes their head again more vigorously, and then swims away to their room, presses the door control, shuts the door. A different one of your parents opens the door and slowly walks in, giving a feeling and a sign of respect and reverence that this is your space and they don't want to intrude but they want to talk blue gestures for them to come into the room and send a feeling of of cautious acceptance um but still keeping the the wariness there 
they sit opposite the room of you and sink down, sitting, attempting to be on the same level. They give images of them thinking. They give images and they show you the acceptance letter. The one that brought you so much joy only days before. And then they tell you to go. Blue just sits there, stunned for a moment. And then they cautiously approach that parent and stand there for a moment visibly emotionally blank not transmitting anything and then suddenly just throw themselves at their parent and wrap them up in a hug and send just waves of joy and gratitude and a sense that I won't let you down that I'll make you proud and you won't regret this decision the last thing that we see is your parent returning the hug and in a almost long forgotten language of the Anorans out loud says, you've already made me proud. And the image goes hazy and it refocuses months in the future. We see blue with bags all around them containing everything, every every scrap of technology within Blue's reach as she was attempting to leave the house for what she felt like, for what Blue felt like might be the last time. They were ready to see the world and they had everything they needed. And we see Paradigm in its prime. So as they take the, you know, transit up to the surface, um... And, you know, acclimate to, you know, the open air rather than the underwater environment they're used to. Blue blinks in the much brighter sun and look across the narrow pebbled beach into the sparse forests and then see these modern looking towers, unlike any kind of Anuran architecture that they've seen, just rising from the ground above them out of this mist that constantly envelops the the small land portion of the planet as they gaze up at these buildings that look so impressive and strong and you know very advanced and sleek and you know their heart starts pounding in their chest as you know they then you know board the land transit to complete the journey as you approach paradigm you see that there are tons of people in this transit tons of people around your age that are all going to the same place you know in your heart and in your mind that these people are like you the image goes hazy once again and it focuses back in Two months later, you've been attending Paradigm for a little bit of time now, and you've actually just received your first homework assignment. You see an equation in front of you. It's a typical graphing equation. 
you know the line, you know the curve that it is going to make, and they simply give you one problem and you have a month to find it. Find the inverse. They take the problem, go back to the room that they share with a few other of the paradigm students. They um, have all been given slightly different problems, but they've all been learning the same skills in their classes and are able to kind of consult and compare notes on each of their separate problems. And Blue uh, is able to, you know, a little earlier than the month, than by the time the month month elapses, they're able to find a solution to that problem that they're happy with and that they feel really good about. And as they graph that inverse and they hit submit, they just feel they know they must be, they must be right. They must have a good answer to that problem. It's a few seconds later before you get a response instantly on your laptop that just says answer accepted. It does not say if it's right or if it's wrong, but it says that the answer is accepted. It took a while to get used to that. At this school, there aren't exactly grades given. They don't tell you if you're right or if you're wrong unless it is drastic. There is, we kind of see a montage of blues studying and learning and applying that in these different homeworks, but there's something interesting. All of them are only due a month later, and it's always a month, and they always say at the end of every class, accuracy is as close to a god as there is in this universe. We see you find the inverse first. Then we see more complicated things pop up. All of them feeding into into Blue's wheelhouse until eventually they send you with a new homework assignment. There is a box of parts and it simply says, build something impressive. You have one month. Blue looks at the parts, starts turning them over in their hands, inspecting them, seeing what each one could possibly do on its own before trying to put them together, see how each piece would work together to make something bigger. And at first, you know, there's a few failed tries. And it's not because the thing doesn't work, but it's because they doubt that that the thing they've made could be impressive. You know, they first build a simple yet elegant machine that rolls up some rice in some seaweed and slices it perfectly to make some perfect sushi rolls. And they show it to their cubicle mates and their, or their roommates and they all have a laugh about it, but they know it's not, they know it's not an impressive thing that this was this was play and that they still have to do the work and as they're playing around with these pieces these you know different parts putting things together taking them apart they build this this machine they're not sure exactly what it does the way to create it just kind of comes to them it you know, suddenly the pieces just start going together in a way that Blue never thought of. And then by the time that it's finished, 
they can tell that it's more than the sum of its parts. You know, they build a hovering ball that is, you know, that's shiny and at its core has a basic quartz gemstone that kind of powers it and gives it life. And it doesn't do much. It just basically flutters around Blue's head. And, you know, every once in a while they can get it to, um, you know, pick up a pencil and draw something, or they can get it to unlock a computer, or they can get it to, you know, feed them some information about something. Um, But it's not consistent. It's not a, it doesn't follow a pattern that they can see. But for some reason, it feels right. And they pack it up lovingly into the box that the parts came in and they bring it down to the um you know the office room i imagine where everyone is placing their creations on i imagine some kind of conveyor belt and it is you know passed into some place that blue can no longer see it and they notice that all the other students are also being kind of secretive and, you know, concealing their creations, but they seem to be the only one or one of the only ones that was able to fit their new creation into the same box that the parts came in. Everything else seems large and bulky and, you know, has to be wrapped in new packaging to maintain that secrecy. And they send their invention off. As we see you turn in your invention, this floating orb that seems to be doing all these miraculous things, but still small enough to fit inside of its original box, the, the everything goes out of focus and it hazes out and then it's months, years later as it comes back into focus. By this point, Blue, you and the fellow students have discovered what your inventions were going to, and you've known for quite some time. You've known that your inventions were being repurposed, or some of them even being mass manufactured, some of them being taken and turned into things that you never intended for them to do. Your inventions were being used as weapons of war. Your professors told you early on that everything you did here was to better society, was to make for a better thing, and yet it was all for war. It was all for the destruction of societies, the destruction of cultures. The program of Paradigm had slowly been losing funding, and you all knew that. With the war winding down, who needed a whole school devoted to war technologies? But there was a chance. There's a chance that Paradigm can live on. And the faculty knew that maybe the students just needed a way. They called everyone together and the headmasters and professors and teachers all gathered you together to simply take a vote. The text appears on your graphics pad in front of you and you just see... Should Paradigm shut down? Yes or no? Blue 
thinks back to the pieces of technology they created, the, the chemical formulas they developed, the equations they solved, the, solved the calculations they did, and thought about how that was all being used, you know, to support this war effort and how that was, you know, they were being manipulated into creating all these things. And they hit, yes, the school should shut down without hesitation. We zoom out on this image and it phases out at the same time and hazes and, but we see the entire auditorium, every student from all of Paradigm sitting perfectly in their seats, rows and boxes perfectly as all of their screens light up green as they voted yes. It was only a few months later that Paradigm was shut down completely. The teachers offered anyone to still write them a letter of recommendation for any school that they wanted to go to. But it wasn't long before you were going and exploring, visiting, going back home. As you get to the shoreline, before you go down into the water, you see a ship off in, off in the distance that is crashed. It, it seems to have been there for quite some time. There's rust developing all over the ship, and you see several of these scattered bodies all over the place, and as you examine them further, they are not a human or a Norin or gnomish or whatever. They are robots. They get closer to the crashed ship, and they start searching through the wreckage, at first just curious and interested what it might be. You know, this is one of the first things they've seen that wasn't in a controlled environment, that wasn't part of training. And so, and it's also very unfamiliar to them that, you know, even before Paradigm, they didn't see anything like this. And so they find the most intact robot of this crashed crew and they start poking around and trying to find how it comes apart, how it opens up. They eventually come across the robot's consciousness cube and as they start to study the cube, um, you know, they, they crack it open, they, you know, look inside it, they see that it's been damaged, hopefully not beyond repair, but who could say? And they also recognize it. You know, they recognize it as um, the same kind of hybrid magical computer system that they had trained on in school. That was one of their problems in school. The problem was called, this system is unstable, please shut it down. And they, they remembered the, you know, computer program that them and their team wrote to hypothetically shut this imaginary computer down. And they recognize it as just a product of Paradigm's deception. And as they put this cube back in the robot's metal head, they decide they want to do something different with it and something different than the school had planned. And so 
they take the arm of this massive robot and they know as long as they can just get it into the water, they'll have the strength to bring it home, to, you know, pull it through the water back down to their family home and, you know, hopefully get it to their room without their parents noticing. <laughs> as you pick up and start to drag it, this robot body has been submerged partially for a long time and you start to notice elements of rust all over the body specifically in the lower half but as you drag it home you're able to get it in the water just fine and the image hazes out and we see one more silent thing as we see you attempting to polish off the last bits of rust and finally something appears that you can tangibly see a serial number AU982 I am AU982 but you can call me Rust As you hop into the ship's seat and begin to pull it away from the beach planet off to Enora, you take a second to reflect. I think I just start thinking about my dad. You go back in your mind. I, I think one of the earliest memories you have of your dad um, is him doing what he loved to do the most. Going insanely fast. You see him flying in this rickety ship that was barely being held together as it just weaves through this track. He is racing, but this time the prize is a little bit different. This time the prize is a ship. Can you describe that ship for me? Well, it uh, it looked very natural. Well, I'm just gonna. It it was Fang. It was Fang. I'm not gonna. <laughs> not gonna dance. Yeah, around not gonna it. dance around it. And I think when was act actually at that race? Like it was a big city event, and uh, Wynn's mom brought her down. Yeah, to watch to watch good old dad. You see, as your father races through, he goes around the tracks, and eventually he starts falling behind. He held first place for so long, but he is slipping behind just a little bit. But that's not how this goes. A sudden burst of speed consumes the ship that your father is in. As you hear the announcers come over and say Kestro Lombardi pulls ahead in the race. He establishes a lead. He is he going to do it? Is he going to go all the way? Is he going to win? 
and he does. Kestro Lombardi, we fast forward just slightly in this scene to him finding the two of you afterwards. He, first of all, hugs our mother, but then he turns his attention to you. You know, I wouldn't have been able to win that race if it weren't for you. He leans down and hugs you and holds you tight. Kestra, named after her father, of course. I think she's probably only three or four at this point. So doesn't really know how to respond other than just, I love you, Dad. We zoom out from that moment and fast forward to the future and we cut to a very different perspective. We cut to a speeding ship. We cut to Kestro holding you with a helmet loosely fitting on your head as he flies through the stars showing you the ropes, showing you how to fly in Fang. Over the next few months, Fang almost feels like a second home. You beg to be flown around, and your father not so reluctantly agrees and makes it to where you become a pilot. We fast forward a few years, and you're seven now. Your father is still flying constantly, but... And you're still able to go to his races, but now you are made a little bit more important. Your father trusts you enough to make you his backup pilot. How old were you when you first did a race? I think probably about then, about seven. Uh, I think the first time Kestra stole Fang in the middle of the night or sometime was when she turned six. So I think after about a year, her dad finally caught on. Or maybe maybe he knew all along, but kind of, you know, let her have her fun. <laughs> he was like, you know what? Maybe you can actually race. Maybe you should actually do this for money. I mean, the little money there is in it. And yeah, put her on, put her on to her first race. I don't think you win the first race. Oh no, 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 no. I mean they don't let <laughs> they don't let you use Fang in those races. They understand like you you see Fang once. You know. And you know. Yeah, you know. That's not that's not allowed. That's cheating. There's a few months in between your 7th and 8th birthday where your father Castro is constantly constantly racing winning every little scrap of money that he could and he won most of his races not all of them of course but most it was still an impressive record on your eighth birthday kestro came up to you and said listen kestro you know i love you right yeah you are my daughter you are perfect my girl I think it's time I'll let you take Fang in the space. <gasps> really? 
Just this once. Okay, that's it. And then it's back to being mine, okay? Okay, okay. For today, for today, hey, look at me, for today, it's yours. I think Kester just throws her arms around her dad, or did just throw her arms around her dad, <laughs> and without saying another word, just ran in, ran in Fang, and just zipped out as soon as possible. It's much later that night as you bring Fang in and slowly bring it to a halt and your father is waiting in the front door. And the scene pauses for a moment and in that exact same spot, your father waiting in the front door, we see a much different perspective only a little over a year later. It's time your father is running out of the door and he's carrying someone. As you look around, you see the Lombardi home burning. Dad? Mom? It's only a few seconds after you say that that Kestro busts into your room only to see a sight that he never wanted. A laser fires through your home. And when your legs are gone. The pain is excruciating. The blood, the blood vessels cauterize instantly due to the heat from the laser emitting. But your father stands in horror as he sees his daughter get cut in half he sees that you're still breathing and he runs he runs to you he picks up what he can he picks up both halves of you he tries his best to do something anything anything to get his daughter to be okay he runs out he only has one thing he can do left he knows that fang will know what to do he doesn't know how he knows but he knows he opens fangs slightly and lowers you down inside gently. He knows that he wants to go with you, but there's too much to do. He can save people here. He's fast. As Fang closes, you hear words that I don't think you ever wanted to hear, but now you do. Kester, you know I love you, but I'm sorry. A fang, get us somewhere safe. The pod shuts and Fang takes off. It's a week later. You're hanging on for dear life, still completely blacked out, comatose from the pain that you have felt from being cut in half. When you land at a beautiful monastery, the Order of the Golden Wing. It's a few weeks later, and you wake up to a weird sight. A human, I you think, standing above you, and some sort of strange amphibian, reptilian... You don't even know what it is, but it looks like something with a shell standing above you. I think Kestra would just look up at them and 
I mean, not really say anything, probably, but just still be in such shock. She probably just passed out. It's a little bit later, and you wake up again. This time, only the shelled thing is still there. And as soon as he sees you stir, you hear a voice come from him. Are you good, little dude? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's not really convincing, but I guess it'll work, man. Where am I? Who, Who are you? And he leans forward and he gets close and says, Well, my name is Quake Strider. And I guess what matters is you're safe. I look down at my legs. At this point, you just see stumps covered in bandages. The bandages don't have much blood on them, but there is blood. Quakestrider notices that your attention goes down and says, Oh, uh, dude, um, so we did what we could, but your legs are gone, man. I don't know if she knows how to respond to that. But hey, uh, now now, if you wanted, you could get uh, cool robot legs, uh, wood legs. Oh, I can give you my legs if you want. I I mean, I've got hands I can walk on. I think she's holding back tears, but she says, "Robot legs sound pretty cool." Robot ones? Yeah. Hey, gotta admire good taste. And he holds out for a fist bump. Kestra bumps. We zoom in and it's several years later. And you're in the same room, but now it's been transformed. It's it's no longer this clinical medical room it is Wynn's room and quake strider stands above you and you've had your legs for a long time now as he looks down and says i know you don't really want to go to this academy but dude it'd be a great help to us <laughs> fine okay if it's uh if it's helping you i guess i mean i still owe you Oh, you've never owed us anything, Wind. Chill out. Hey, uh, you know, uh, you remember my real name? I mean, dude, it's been, it's been a long time, but why would I forget that? I know I might never go by, uh, anything other than Wind. At least as long as I'm here. But if I do, I think I want to go by Kestro. 
Well, I think that seems like a pretty neat deal. Let's get you packed up. Yeah. as you start to explore your mind while you sit on this ship from Star Academy headed to a planet that before now you've only ever heard of, you start to think back and start to specifically wonder what makes you connected to everyone else? What is that connection that so many people in the past few days have been talking about? I think back to my parents, Rose's parents, they were so loving and caring, but so had such destruction in their minds, or as a goal. I suppose Rose is thinking about, did she see anything from them? Was there any sign? You think back on some of the brighter days at first, some of the days when you were especially young. You know, you remember your mother carrying you from room to room, your your father picking you up. You remember uh, home-cooked meals that just, even if they weren't the best at times, they felt right. The books they'd read to me, the the fact that they would show the stars to me like a storybook. They they also shared their interest in the stars. Not nearly the same obsession that Rose has, but it was there. As you start to reflect more on it, you, you do remember there were times as you got older where your parents had to leave uh seemingly on an emergency um just to go to work and to do what they were doing and sometimes they stayed longer than others but usually one of them stayed behind with you and then there was one day where they didn't come back how old were you seven seven years old when they said their last goodbye. I had been tired. My stomach had been upset the night before and they stayed up with me. And then suddenly there was the typical bustle and bustle of them getting ready to leave. The warm hugs, the sweet kisses on the cheek, the stroking of the hair, the sweet farewells. Nothing was abnormal about their farewell this time, except that both were leaving. And my aunt had come in. She had brought a large bag, bigger than normal, so I knew that it would be a while before I'd see my parents again. So I gave them an extra tight hug. But I knew they'd be back, because they always came back. But then they didn't. We 
we don't zoom out on this scene, but instead it's almost as if the scene, as if the scene freezes in place and fast forwards to two months later. You are standing in the same spot right inside of the front door of your childhood home. Your aunt cooking a meal furiously in the background, hoping that maybe this time it will be as good as the ones that your parents made. Maybe this time you'll be happy with it. And you are reading the letter that states that your parents are dead. Blank stare. I had learnt to read at a young age. My parents had taught me and now I could read that they had died. There was no details. It was merely as if they had never existed. Their existence on this piece of paper, maybe. But they were gone. I didn't say anything. I, I, I carried the letter. I placed it on the table. I didn't act like anything had happened until after my aunt served the dinner and found the letter herself. She had seen me quietly eating, although I don't know if I'd have called it eating, merely one or two mouthfuls of food before I had stopped, and merely all the movements on the fork were a distraction. I didn't know if it was true, maybe it wasn't. But when my aunt screamed, I believed it to be true. She hugged me, and that's when I cried. The scene freezes yet again on this image of Rose crying, weeping, realizing, and coming to the truth that her parents are actually dead. And then that same scene fast forwards. We see a little bit of interaction. We see your aunt maybe <laughs> calming down while she's cooking. We see your aunt grow closer to you. It's never quite the same because frankly, Rose, you were never quite the same. It's a couple years later. I would think I, I, it's about three years later we have a 10 almost 11 year old rose when yet again we see time slow down on this scene and it goes back to normal time as we see rose yet again in the same place right in the front door of her childhood home it's not every day that a child has their house raided it's usually in the worst of circumstances and this was by far one of the worst your aunt had apparently been going out at nights uh, had sympathized with the anti-war movement that was going on on earth at the time did you have any idea of this I had no idea. I had seen her go out, but I didn't assume it was for anything malicious. They called her a terrorist. But I didn't know her as a terrorist. I knew her as the person who tried her best to replace my parents. Obviously knowing she could never be, 
do so. I watched again blankly, and I hate myself for it. As they burst the door down, I ran. But they grabbed me. And they held me by the door as they searched. Finding boxes, finding papers, finding weapons. All of it, all of it hit me at once. Who had she been? I hated that they died. I hated that they had left for the war and I had lost them, but maybe she made, maybe she hated it more. She did lose her sister. I looked at her. Her face was so pained. Clearly not for herself. It was definitely for me. I could see the regret. I wondered if she thought about the fact that I would be alone. But that was the last time I saw her. The twisted, pained expression on her face. The scene freezes there once again. And we see it fast forward ever so slightly. This time it moves with you, Rose. We see you being taken to a, a base. It looks militaristic. It looks very clinical. It looks dark. It looks scary. And for someone who's not even a teenager at this point, doubly so, we see you go under experiments. We see that you you would wake up with a new scar on your body. We would see that you heal faster bit by bit through everything that you do. And we see that you take comfort in one thing. Outside of your bedroom window, you see the stars. They're the same stars that your father spent many nights telling you the stories of and that your mother held you closely as she showed you even more about them. They became my obsession, my anchor to reality. Nothing brought me comfort. Nothing made me feel anything but those stars. My only link, my only hope. I just accepted that my life was these experiments, that my life was these experiments and the screen and those stars. And as long as the stars were there, maybe I could be okay. And then the day came that I didn't have to be in that room anymore. The raid on the military site where you were being held was done quickly. It wasn't planned. It was barely done efficiently, but it was done quickly. You were 13 by the time that the raid happened. You were dragged out of your room, but that doesn't seem right to you. No, Rose doesn't get dragged. Rose fights back. A hand grabbed me and I bit it. Did, to me, all hands were foes. There was not a single hand that could have held me that I would have accepted. They touched me. None, none of the scientists None of those that ever worked on me ever touched me that way. They expected me to follow, and I'd give them that much so they didn't have to sedate me. But this was a hand that touched me. I bit it and I ran. I don't know why. 
didn't seem to be a reason. Like, there was no security, and that seemed strange, but I took advantage of it. I ran. I see. I saw people carrying boxes, moving. None of that registered. They were all enemies. As I eventually found my way out, I could see large vehicles, bright lights shining. I wandered slowly, and no one took notice of me. And that's when I decided to just slip through the fence and go into the trees. The trees provided something for you, Rose. They provided darkness and they provided cover. And in times of desperation, they even provided shelter. But there was something more important in that darkness. The stars that helped you stay grounded. The stars that provided a sense of reality for you shone even brighter. Eventually, you came across a little farmstead looked wildly comfortable in comparison to what you had had in the past. Maybe now you can find a home, and maybe now, even though you are alone, maybe now you can be yourself, have a name for yourself, make a life for yourself. What was the village like? It was... Small compared to Rose, what Rose had been used to. There were houses, but there were farmland and little expanses of just grass with a few trees. It was very disconnected from the city in which she grew up in. Her favorite place was a little tree that she built a little shelter for herself at. She would occasionally steal from the townspeople. She didn't join them immediately. They were people, and she still didn't trust anyone. But one day she was caught stealing. And that's when she had to tell them something. But there was not really much she could tell her. They, they saw that there was trouble. They probably put two and two together. They knew the raid was close to where they were located. But they didn't get rid of me. And they even looked after me, providing me with a little hut of my own. And as long as I went to school, of course. But most of the time I would sneak away to my little shelter by the trees. And I'd have nights where I'd stare at the stars. One day in the village, a man comes around uh, dressed in a military uniform, unlike any that you've ever seen. These had a different type of symbol on them. This symbol had a, a ship being shot up into space with stars surrounding it. And you hear him say, You can go to space if you want. All you have to do is come join us. Come join Star Academy. We'll train you how to be a space person yourself. I resisted at first. The idea of going to space. 
my parents went to space, they died, although it had been a war, and the war was over. Or at least for now. But I, was, I didn't belong in the village. Even though they were kind to me, it was probably more out of obligation. After some deliberation, I accepted but only because I felt as though I had no choice, as though I had no future here, and at least I could be closer to the things I loved. The last thing we see is, as the scene pauses and fast-forwards, we see Rose getting onto an unknown ship with a man dressed in the most gaudy, weird clothes ever, presenting himself as some sort of senator, some Senator Flowers or something like that, as he boards <sighs> the ship and we see it take off. That guy. 